What does it mean to be blessed? The idea of being blessed is universally a popular one. Everybody wants to be blessed. No matter where you're from, no matter what your religious background is, or what you believe about God, everyone wants to be blessed. But what does that mean? How do we get blessed? Where can we find it? Is it found in material possessions? Is it found in being in a peaceful society? Is it found in fame? While we might be tempted at times to think that might be the case, we just look at the news, and over the last couple weeks, and we see that blessing isn't found in fame or fortune or friends or family. We see reminders every day that people who have those things are not only unhappy and uncontent, but they are despairing. So what does it mean to be blessed? Can we be blessed? How do we get blessed? Where do we go to look for the answer for questions like these? Well, we look at God's Word, and our passage today will point us to what it means to be blessed and where anyone who seeks God's blessing can find it. We're taking a, a break from our Genesis series over the summer while Pastor Brian is away, and we'll spend a few weeks looking at the Psalms. The Psalms are a collection of poems or songs that the Israelites used in worshiping God. The Psalms are carefully and purposefully put together, in, arranged in five books, which mirrors the five books that Moses wrote, the Pentateuch. They interpret Israel's history and God's relationship with them. But they also function in a prophetic way. They look forward to God's continued faithfulness in the future. And while there are psalms written by a number of different people, and some we don't even know who they were written by, as a whole, the book can be considered to have one central figure other than God himself, the Davidic king. Many of these psalms were written by David, and others look forward to a future Davidic king who will reign. So Charles Spurgeon, a pastor from England, wrote a famous commentary on the psalms that was called The Treasury of David. Psalms 1 and 2 form an introduction to the whole book, the longest book in the Bible. These two psalms introduce us to two main themes that the whole book addresses. Psalm 1 tells us about the blessed man. Alvin Latonwa, the pastor at Crossroads Church, preached on that in November, if you recall. He told us that the blessed man is the man who delights himself in the law of the Lord. He delights in the Lord's Torah or teaching. And Psalm 2 complements and completes the idea of those who are truly blessed and where to find God's blessing. That's where I'd like to turn your attention to now. So please turn with me to Psalm 2. Follow along as I read to you. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. O Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts softened to obey what you call us to from Psalm 2 today. We pray in the name of your Son, King Jesus. Amen. So, Psalms 1 and 2 are like the opening prelude to the whole concert of the Psalter. They give us two melodies of the blessed life, which are repeated throughout the whole book. They invite us to come, and they tell us how to be blessed. Psalm 1 tells us that the blessed life, or the good life, is found in delighting in and walking according to God's commands, found in His Word. Psalm 2, which we'll be focusing on today, promises us that the good life, a blessed life, flows out of being in right relationship with God and His anointed King. So, if you were to summarize this passage and my sermon, I would do it this way. If you rebel, you'll face wrath, so bow to the king and be blessed. If you rebel, you'll face wrath, so bow to the king and be blessed. We'll be unpacking this main idea in two points. Point number one, rebel and you'll face wrath. Rebel and you'll face wrath, God's wrath. The psalm opens with a question, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? As is typical in Hebrew poetry, we have a pair of lines. Do you see it? The nations raging, the people's plotting. Verse 2 gives us another pair, or a couplet. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. These aren't different groups of people. They are slightly different angles looking at the same group of people. The nations are the peoples, and these nations and peoples are represented by their leaders in verse 2. 
the kings, the rulers. It's interesting to note that the psalmist can just mention the leaders and kings as representative of all of the peoples and all of the nation. This literary device in Hebrew poetry of having matching lines with repeated, repeating the same idea is called parallelism because they're in parallel to one another. In this psalm, we see parallel couplets or pairs in almost every single verse. And it's so wonderful. It's a wonderful design of Hebrew poetry. It's so helpful to us because it, it helps us to see more and more clearly with each repetition. Each line helps to fill out and clarify the line that came before it. It's like a picture being brought closer and closer into focus. The point that the author is making becomes more and more defined. It's like switching from an old analog TV to a new HD screen. You know, do you guys remember analog TVs? Nope. Well, it's like going from HD to 4D or IMAX. The picture's better. It's clearer. You get a finer image. It brings it to life for you. Now, if we read in a hurry over these lines, we can lose that. We can miss that. We can miss what they're revealing to us. So what do these couplets reveal to us? Look back at the passage. The nations are raging. The peoples are plotting. The kings are taking their stand or setting themselves. And the rulers are conspiring. They're scheming. The rebellion is comprehensive. It's not just some of the nations. It's all of them. It's not just some of the peoples, it's all of them. It's the rulers and kings as well. And the language here is the language of war. They're plotting and planning how they're going to win this war. The battle lines have been drawn up. They're taking their stand. They're setting up their armies. But who are they raging against? Who are they at war with? The end of verse 2 tells us, they are at war with the Lord, and they are at war with His anointed. The word there, anointed, is just a translation from the Hebrew word Messiah. These nations, represented by their rulers, are rebelling against God Himself and His Messiah. That is, his chosen king. In the Old Testament, where Psalm 2 is found, the kings of Israel were anointed with oil by the high priest to their role. This act of putting on oil marked them apart as God's king, the king over Israel. You can read about David being anointed as king in 1 Samuel 16. The kings of the earth and their people are standing against God and against Israel's anointed king. Now listen to what these rulers and peoples have to say. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. At the heart of the rebellion is viewing God's ways as binding, as restrictive, as enslaving them, like chains shackling them, 
Unlike the blessed man in Psalm 1, who delights in the instruction of the Lord, these rebels feel that God's ways are not good. They're a burden. God's ways are holding them back from true freedom. Their definition of freedom is to be free of God and His rules and the reign of His King. That is at the heart of all rebellion against God. It's been that way since Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember when Brian preached on that a few weeks ago? Satan, in the form of a serpent, comes slithering in to tempt and deceive Adam and Eve. And what does he do to tempt them? He calls into question God's ways, His instructions, and He makes them seem like chains shackling them, ropes trapping them, rather than the way to a blessed life. Let me ask you a question for a moment. Does that describe you at all? Does that describe the way that you sometimes feel about God's Word? or often feel about God's Word? Are there times when things you find in God's Word just seem so harsh or hard or restrictive? They seem like a burden. Are you tempted sometimes to ask, even if not out loud, but inside, did God really say that? Does He really mean that? He can't mean that. Surely not. That's too much. If we're honest with ourselves, we've all felt that way at one time and another. I felt that way while I was preparing to preach from Psalm 2 today. Did God really say He laughs at those who stand in rebellion against Him, who rage against Him, who plot against Him? Yes, He did. And He's not ashamed of it. And neither should we be. Brothers and sisters, we're not immune to that way of thinking about God and His rules or His Word, His instructions. While God has transformed our hearts and our minds to accept His ways and His wisdom, we can still be tempted to think God's ways like this. And it's especially tempting to feel this way when everybody else around us is saying it. Being a Christian who follows God's ways means being a killjoy, not having any fun. Maybe you're here this afternoon and you aren't a Christian. Maybe that's exactly the way you think about God's Word. The Bible is a list of do's and don'ts which lead Christians to have boring lives, devoid of pleasure, or maybe even worse. Maybe you think God's ways and His rules are evil. But that is not seeing rightly. God's Word, including His instructions for how we should live, are beautiful. They make us wise. They lead to a blessed life, a good life. Chapter 1 tells us that they bring life like water brings life to a tree. We live here in a desert. We know how important water is to plant life. Chapter 1 tells us that God's Word is like that. It's vital to life. It also tells us that those who keep God's Word will be fruitful and prosperous in God's ways. 
And by keeping God's word, we'll be counted among the righteous. Simply put, we'll be blessed. The example of the nations here in these verses is a warning to all of us about how we view God's word and therefore how we view God himself. We must fight to view God's word rightly, not as a burden, but as the truth which leads to a blessed life. Unlike the rulers and the kings of the nations, Israel's anointed one, their king, was to be a man of God's word. Listen to how God instructed Israel concerning their king in Deuteronomy chapter 17. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. The king was to be a man who embodied God's word. Like the blessed man of Psalm 1, he was to delight in it and meditate upon it day and night, walk according to it, and to lead God's people in keeping it. And notice, in the same way that these rulers stand as representatives of the nations, the Lord's anointed stands as a representative of God Himself and His people. The nations and their rulers have rejected God's Word and are taking their stand in direct opposition to God and His anointed King. But now let's turn our gaze from the army of rebellious nations to God Himself. How does the Lord react to those who are raging against Him? Look back at our passage. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. What a dreadful sight. God laughs at His enemies. The Lord scoffs at those who rage against Him. He's not even concerned. He remains seated. Nothing can concern Him. No enemy stands a chance against Him, not even a furrowed brow or a pause to consider what He'll do next. No, He simply laughs. He scoffs at them. He scorns them. God's reaction reveals why their plotting is in vain or pointless. They can't win. God's infinitely more powerful than these kings or rulers. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He has an army of angels at His beck and whim. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. Starting a war with God is vain, to say the least. It's pointless. It's even insane. Because He won't be thwarted, and He cannot be overcome. When David wrote this psalm, there were armies, literal armies, 
Nations led by kings and rulers who were waging wars against God's chosen people, Israel, and God's anointed king, David and those that came after him, his sons. To wage war against the Davidic king was to wage war against God himself. The kings of the nations have had their word. They plan to reject God's rule. And what does God have to say in response? Verses 5 and 6 tell us, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God speaks in response to these evil nations and their rulers. What's his answer to their rebellion and rejection of him? Not only does he laugh at the arrogance of thinking that they stand a chance, but he speaks. And notice the way he speaks. In his wrath, terrifying them in his fury. The Holy One speaks words of wrath and fury. God won't tolerate opposition. He won't tolerate rebellion. He demands absolute loyalty, not only to Himself, but to His anointed King who He set in place. Anything less than absolute loyalty will lead to being an enemy of God under His wrath under his fury. Again, what a terrifying thought. God speaking in wrath and fury. He says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God has appointed a king to bring the nations into submission. God's reaction to the raging nations is to install an anointed king on Zion his holy hill. Zion is just another name for the city of David, or Jerusalem, where God dwelt in the midst of His people. And then in verses 7 through 9, God's anointed one, the king, speaks, recounting God's promises to him. In verse 7, God promises that He has become His Father, and He, God's Son, This picks up the covenant promises that God made to David and his heir in 2 Samuel 7. God said, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. God has a special relationship with the anointed one, who's not only king, but relates to God as his father. He promises that the king will inherit the nations in verse 8. This king won't only rule over Israel but the whole world will bow to him. There's a universal scope to this king's reign. The king on David's throne will be the heir of the whole earth. And he promises that this king will destroy his enemies in verse 9. Anyone who stands against him will be overcome. The king will rule over them in one of two ways. Either they'll submit willingly, or He'll conquer them. How does all of this apply to us? Many 
hundreds of years later. Are the nations still raging today? If so, which ones? And who are they raging against? Who is God's anointed? These are all important questions, and we have to answer them very carefully. One helpful way to begin to answer these questions is to read the Bible backwards. That's right, I said read the Bible backwards. Here's what I mean. The Bible was written down and revealed over a long period of time by various human authors and later authors pick up the ideas and the themes and even quote earlier authors and then they unpack those themes and ideas and they develop them further. So to help us understand and interpret earlier parts of the Bible, like the Psalms, we can look ahead and see how those texts were understood by later authors. Psalm 2 is actually one of the most quoted psalms in the whole of the New Testament. It's quoted by Peter, it's quoted by Paul, it's quoted by John, it's quoted by the author of Hebrews, which we read earlier, and it's quoted to or alluded to multiple times in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, which describes Jesus returning to the earth to rule and reign over the entire universe. Where did these men learn how to read their Bibles this way? They learned from Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, when they were walking on the road to Emmaus, Jesus interpreted to them in all of the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. So to read the Bible backwards is just another way of saying we sit at the feet of the apostles and Jesus Himself in learning how to read our Bibles. If we had time, we could look at every single one of those passages and see how they applied it, and I would ask you to apply it that way too. But we don't have enough time. So let's just take one example. Turn back to page 6 in your bulletin. Here, we have one example of how this text is quoted. Acts chapter 4. Following being arrested and brought before the same council that had condemned and crucified Jesus, Peter and some of the disciples came back together and they reported about how they had been arrested and been told that they must not speak about Jesus anymore. They must not preach about Jesus as the King of Israel. And when Peter and John report back, they stop and they pray. And look at their prayer. There, it's starting halfway through verse 24. They call upon the sovereign Lord. Sovereign means He's in complete control of everything. It means that He made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That's the one who sits in the heavens in Psalm 2. They say Psalm 2 was spoken through David's mouth by the Holy Spirit. It's God's Word inspired through King David. And they apply Psalm 2 to what's just happened in Jerusalem. The rulers or kings are Herod and Pontius Pilate. And the nations and peoples are the Gentiles and even the peoples of Israel, 
when they gathered together against God's holy servant, Jesus, whom God anointed. Do you see that? Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the anointed one or Messiah of Psalm 2. And even the peoples of Israel, God's chosen people, if they reject and stand against God's Messiah, they're part of the rebellious crowd of Psalm 2. Look even further down in verse 29. The disciples pray for themselves that in the midst of threats, in the midst of raging from those who stand against Jesus, God would give His servants boldness to speak the word. Christian, do you feel the nations raging against you? Perhaps your co-workers mock you for following Jesus. Or maybe your school friends reject you or exclude you for following Jesus. Or maybe it's even closer to home for some of you, and I know it is, that your family try to keep you from following Jesus. Take comfort. Take comfort, brothers and sisters. You're not alone. That was the way that they treated King David. That was the way that they treated the Lord Jesus himself. And that was the way they treated Peter and John as well. So we must not be surprised when we follow God's anointed king that we face opposition too. Let's follow the example of the disciples here and pray boldly to the Lord that he would grant us boldness to speak the word of the gospel in the midst of mocking, in the midst of threats, in the midst of hostility. And let's take comfort in the fact that God's sovereign. He's sovereign. He's ruling over all things. This passage even says that He was sovereign over the crucifixion of His own Son. He's appointed His King, Jesus, who rules over all. And He will return, and when He does, every knee will bow, and every enemy will be vanquished. His wrath on sinners will be quickly kindled. But to all of those who have taken refuge in Him, they will be blessed. And that leads us to point number two. Bow to the King and be blessed. Bow to the King and be blessed. Look back at Psalm 2 with me for a moment. Look at verses 10 through 12. Here, David concludes all that he's been saying so far about those who rebel against the sovereign Lord and His anointed one. They stand judged. They're under wrath. If they continue, they'll face God's furious judgment, and as easily as a potter can smash a vessel that he's not pleased with, they will be dashed to pieces. What does David say? Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. David tells us how these kings should respond in light of God's power and might. He tells us again in another couplet or pair, a parallel. Be wise. 
be warned. You know, it's wise to heed warnings. It's foolish to ignore them. When I was growing up here in Dubai and was in school, my mum worked in the same school that I went to. And she was a lab technician in the school, so she was oftentimes asked to go and collect supplies for the science department. Exciting things for a young 15-year-old boy. Uh, chemicals, compounds, acids. And she oftentimes would come home with these huge bottles, bottles filled of chemicals that I couldn't pronounce the names of. And almost always, these bottles had huge warning labels written on them. Big warning labels in bright colors. One would have a, a bright red background with flames coming up, and it would say flammable liquid at the bottom. That, that was always exciting. Others would have a yellow background, and they would have a hand with a test tube filled with liquid, and it was just dropping uh, just, a, just a small amount of liquid onto a, onto a surface or onto a hand and, and burning a hole right through them. Yes, I know, that's gross. <laughs> Hands being burnt by acid. Uh, maybe my favorite one was, it was pretty simple. It just had a skull and crossbones on it. You know, skull and crossbones, like a pirate ship. It was bright yellow. And it just said one word, toxic. I love that. You know what was wise? Reading those labels and not opening those bottles and pouring concentrated acid on myself. Thankfully, I never did that. I was incredibly wise. <laughs> I paid attention to the warning labels, largely because my mum added an extra warning that if I didn't, I would be in deep trouble. Do you see? Those warnings are there to help us, not hurt us. My mum warned me because she loved me, and she didn't want me to burn a hole in my hand or the kitchen table. The danger was real, and so my mum's warning was real. And thankfully, I was wise enough to heed that warning. Psalm 2 is a huge warning to us as well, and David wants us to pay close attention. He doesn't want us to downplay the danger of the situation. He doesn't want us to minimize the seriousness of standing against God in willful rebellion. He says that's pointless. It's vain. God's not intimidated by you. He won't be overcome by you. And he set his king, his son, the Messiah, on Zion's hill. If you stand against him, you will fall and you'll face God's wrath. So if you are here today and you're not a Christian, or if you're here today and you don't know if you're a Christian, I'm going to talk to you for just a moment. Christians believe, and I hope they've told you this, Christians believe that the Bible teaches, and that it's true, that God is very real, and that He's very powerful. And that He made everything, including you. And that we will all stand before Him and give an account for our lives. He's holy, and therefore He will judge us according to what we have done. 
What it means that He's holy is that He's without sin. He's without any evil. He's only good. He's perfect. He always does what's right. And He's going to judge us according to that standard. The Bible also says that we've all rebelled, just like those that are described in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 2. Every single one of us since Adam and Eve in the garden has rejected God's rule. We have been foolish. We've not been wise. We've rejected God and His King. And we've chosen to set up our own little kingdoms where we are king, where we are God. How does God respond to rebels like us? Just like in Psalm 2. He's not intimidated by us. We stand condemned under His judgment, and we deserve to be judged for all eternity long under His wrath. But God is not only holy, and He is not only all-powerful, He's also merciful and gracious and loving and forgiving. And so He sent His Son, Jesus, the Christ, that just means the Messiah. Jesus was the anointed one. Jesus is God the Son. Jesus became a man, born in the line of King David who wrote Psalm 2. Jesus came to save His people from their sinful rebellion against God. God showed His love for us in that while we were still sinners, still rebels, Christ died for us. Jesus took on our rebellion, though He was without sin. He took the wrath that we deserved for our sins when He died on the cross. We were made right with God by Jesus' blood shed on the cross, and that we are saved by Him from the wrath of God that is to come, the wrath that we all deserve. But Jesus didn't only die. Jesus rose victorious from the dead, and He sits even now on the throne as King. And that's what the last line of Psalm 2 means when it says, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. To take refuge means to find safety and security from the wrath that you deserve, from God's judgment. Where can you find safety and security? In the Son. How? Kiss the Son. That's it. Kiss the Son. Honor Him. Trust in Him. Turn from your rebellion. Lay down your weapons. Surrender and bow to the King. Every Christian in this room did that at one point or another. If you're here and you're not a Christian, ask them, what did it look like? to find refuge in Jesus? What happened in your life? What changes took place? And ask them what that might look like for you also. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Do that today. Don't wait. Do it today before it's too late. Brothers and sisters, I also want to speak to you as well. I want to encourage you. 
we get to participate in helping people to find that refuge. We get to participate in reconciling people to God. But we must be bold like King David. He doesn't shy away from the bad news. He's not ashamed of God's holy wrath against sin. His warning is rather shocking. And ours should be too. A gospel without a warning is a gospel that is powerless to save. Remember the warnings on the chemical bottles that I told you about. The danger is real, and so they make those warnings vivid and large and scary. Imagine if my mom had left those bottles in the fridge or on the counter and had taken the labels off them, maybe left them without a label, or maybe put a new label on that said, uh, this is a little bit bad, uh, but you, you'll probably be okay if you just don't drink the whole thing. That would be ludicrous, because the danger was real. The more severe the danger, the more pronounced our warning should be. Brothers and sisters, warnings are loving. They are not hurtful. They are not evil. They are not mean. When we talk to our non-Christian friends, we want to speak to them in love, and we want to be sensitive to them. But they are in very real danger. Just look at Psalm 2. Unless they realize the danger that they are in, they will all perish under God's wrath, whether they know it or not. We don't ignore that because it might be unpleasant for them to hear. We aren't unnecessarily offensive either. We must communicate in love. We must communicate with sensitivity. But we must, we must communicate this truth. They stand in direct opposition to God. They're not in the neutral zone. They're rebelling against Him. And unless they turn from that, unless they honor God's Son, unless they serve Him with fear, God's anger and wrath remains on them. God's wrath is quickly kindled, and they will perish. Let's follow David's example of warning people in love to come to King Jesus wave the white flag of surrender, and to invite them to find safety, security, and blessing in Him. Who should we make this invitation to? Everyone. Look. Look back at the passage. The kings and rulers who were rebels in verse 2 are now called to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, to be wise, to be warned, they can be transformed. They can be transformed from rebels to servants. They can do that if they will just bow their knee to King Jesus. And we see in verse 8 that Christ's rule has a universal scope. The nations are His inheritance, and He'll possess the ends of the earth. The invitation is open to peoples from all nations, all kingdoms of the world, it doesn't matter what their background is. Nobody is excluded. Not even the people of Israel, though, are automatically included. All have to bow their knee to King Jesus. All can find refuge in Him, no matter what their background is. Even those of us who were fortunate enough to be born to Christian parents, 
we must ourselves personally bow to King Jesus. We have to do that. Let's be bold in lovingly sharing this message with all of those around us, no matter where they're from, no matter how rebellious they are. At the beginning of the sermon, I asked you, what does it mean to be blessed, and where can we find it? Where can we find blessing? The blessed life isn't a life that's free from opposition or difficulty. We see that clearly in Psalm 2. The nations are still raging. They're raging against Christ and His body. That's us, His church. No, the blessed life isn't the easy life, but it is the life that's guided by God's Word, according to Psalm 1. And it's the life that's in right relationship with God and His anointed King, His Son, King Jesus, as we've seen from Psalm 2. To be blessed is to find refuge from the wrath of God. To be blessed is to be adopted as sons of God because we're found in Jesus, the Son of God. To be blessed is to be wise by heeding God's warnings of the coming judgment and to have a future hope with Jesus in glory. To be blessed is to have joy that can only be found in serving the Lord. It's being part of Christ's inheritance made up of peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The blessed life is the life that's united by faith to God and our King Jesus. So let's bow to King Jesus and be blessed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You for Your Word that makes us wise. Lord, we pray that even when we hear hard things in it, that we would know that it is good and that it is sweet and that it is for our benefit. Lord, we pray that we would bow to King Jesus in every area of our life, that we would worship Him, that we would trust ourselves to Him, and that we would be found in Him. Lord, we pray for those around us that we get to share this good news of Your Son who was crucified in the place of rebels. We pray that as we get to go from here and share that with others, that You would call them out of darkness into light, that they would turn from rebels into servants and saints. We pray that all that we do would be to the glory and fame of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.